0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. If you're wondering where Isaiah is, it's in your Old Testament. First half of your Bible, and we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 53 together. If you didn't bring a Bible, we're going to show it on the screen as well. And I'm going to ask all of us to stand as we get ready to read the Word of God together. And so, as you're flipping or scrolling to that passage, Isaiah 53, if we'd also been at the same time standing to your feet, and we're going to say this passage together out loud right now as we get into the Word of God together. And so, I want you to read with me Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 to 11 together right now. What does it say? It says. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed." We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. But by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken." He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear his 700 years before Jesus stepped on this earth, there was a prophet called Isaiah who gave this prophecy about one day a servant of God, a Messiah, would come onto this earth and who would suffer and die for the sins of people. It was 700 years before Jesus came into this world. And it's an appropriate passage that we're looking at today as we look at today's topic. We're going through a series here at Thrive. It is called Overcome My Unbelief. And in this series, we're looking at some of the biggest questions, in some cases, some of the biggest criticisms and objections people have to believing in the Christian God. And in the first week, we looked at, is Christian faith compatible with science? Uh, in the next week, last week, we looked at, what, is there, what evidence is there for the existence of God? Today, we are looking at a topic that I think is going to be really, really relevant to a lot of us here in this place. Uh, we're going to be looking at the topic, how can a loving God allow evil and suffering. Would you turn neighbors on your right and your left, give them a high five and say, your questions are safe with me. Your your questions are safe with me. Please have your seats. Here in this series, we're looking at a lot of different questions, some big questions, some tough questions. And our goal is to give honest, open, real answers to those questions. And the question we're asking here today is how can a loving God allow evil and suffering? Do you have a proactive church in in this place this morning? I said, do I have a proactive church in this place this morning? By that, I mean you're not afraid to shout to God. Will you give God a big shout in this place this morning? By that, I mean you're not afraid to take notes. I hope to take some good notes in this place as we get into the message this morning. See, today we're looking at what many people consider to be the greatest challenge to believing in God. And that is the problem of evil and suffering. You know, when you consider how much suffering there is in this world, whether it's due to people's own inhumanity against other people, or it's due to natural disasters, it can be very hard to believe in God sometimes. Uh, I remember in 2012, just a week and a half before Christmas, uh, in a town called Newtown, Connecticut, there was a 20 year old man who murdered his own mom and then proceeded to go to a local elementary school called Sandy Hook Elementary, where he then opened fire on people in the school. He ended up killing 20 children between the ages of six and seven, as well as six adult staff at the school before committing suicide by shooting himself in the head. And to this day, Whenever I think about that horrific tragedy that happened in 2012, it breaks my heart. I simply can't imagine what the parents of those children have gone through, what the loved ones of these children must have gone through, what the loved ones of these staff must have gone through and still go through to this day. You know, I remember just a year or two later, uh, I was attending a funeral, and it was the hardest funeral that I've ever been a part of. Uh, It was for a six-year-old boy, and this boy had died of leukemia. And I I still remember it so vividly like it was yesterday, that in the middle of this big auditorium, there was the tiniest coffin I'd ever seen. And on top of that co- coffin was a bouquet of flowers. And on top of that bouquet was a ribbon, a big ribbon that said, love, mom and dad. And uh, man, you know, I, I don't always cry at funerals, but on that day, I cried. And even as I'm getting ready on that day to lead people in prayer at the end of that service, in my heart was this question, God, how could you let this happen? Have you asked that question before? God, how could you let that happen? Maybe you're watching the news going, God, how could that happen? Why did that happen? You know, even this weekend as I'm preaching this message to you guys this morning, you check out the news and and there's all sorts of stuff you can find in the news. Suffering going on. You, know, 31,000 uh, confirmed cases of the coronavirus affecting people all over the world. 800 people having died from the same virus. Uh, you read about a soldier in Thailand who decided to open fire on people in a shopping mall and right now the death toll is about, uh, at over 26 people. Uh, in Mississippi, in the United States, States there was a news of a 33 year old mother and her six children the youngest being one year old and they were killed in a house fire the dad was trying to rescue them from the fire but he couldn't and uh, he suffered injuries that took him to the hospital and this, this all just happened in just the span of just a few days and that's the thing about the problem of evil and suffering is that it's not just a question that we think about it's a question that we feel and in some cases, it's not just a question we feel, but it's a question we feel in relation to real people that we know, people who might be very dear to us, even our own lives where we think, God, what were you up to by allowing that kind of suffering to happen? If you've ever had that question, then you're in a safe place today because I think we've all had that question before. And I'm, gonna hear, I'm here to tell you this is that just because uh, it's such an emotionally charged question, how can God allow evil and suffering? We've got to be careful gotta be careful with something is that to not let our emotions and our emotional bias answer the entire question for us. Is that, you know, when we're in the heat of the moment and we're feeling all these emotions, it's easy to get, oh, there's, there's no God. And it's hard to believe that there is a God in the wake of great suffering. But how we feel is not a reason by itself to conclude God doesn't exist. We need to deal with the issue on uh, not just an emotional level, but on an intellectual level. And a philosophical level as well. And so that's what we're here to do today. See, one of the things I love about the Bible is that it's real. Uh, It's real in that the Bible doesn't just try to avoid the problem of suffering. It doesn't try to sugarcoat our feelings towards suffering. But much the opposite. When you read the Bible, three chapters into the Bible, you read about evil and suffering. And all throughout the Bible, you'll find that there are people, ordinary people like you and me, who are wrestling with the problem of evil and suffering, saying things like, God, why? Why did that have to happen? Where were you? How long until you do something? In some cases, it's so direct, they'll say stuff like, God, when will you wake up? That's the kind of of words, the kind of prayers, the kind of questions that you see in the Bible, where real people are asking real questions about the problem of suffering. And rather than avoiding the question, after, rather than sugarcoating the problem, you'll find that the Bible faces head on this question of why is there evil and suffering in the world? And I believe when you look at all the different possible explanations that the world and different philosophies, different religions will offer, I believe that what you're going to find is the Bible offers what is the most intellectually and emotionally satisfying answer to this very, very difficult question. And so before I share with you the Christian response to the problem of evil and suffering, Can I show you some of the alternative views on evil and suffering that you're going to find in this world? And because the fact is this, whatever your worldview is, whether you consider yourself to be a Christian or you consider yourself an atheist, you consider yourself an agnostic, you consider yourself a part of some other faith kind of background, the fact is the problem of evil and suffering is not just a question for Christians to answer. This is a question we all need to look at. This is a question that we all need to try to answer. And the question is, what is the best explanation for the evil and the suffering that we see in this world, both on an intellectual level and on an emotional level. And so let's look at a few different alternative views on how people tend to look at suffering in this world. Let's let's first look at the New Age response to suffering. And and what's New Age? New Age is a philosophy that became really popular in the 1970s, and it actually continues to influence many people through books like Rhonda Burns' The Secret, even to this day. Is that borrowing from a wide variety of different spiritual traditions, Uh, New Age teaches that everything that exists in this whole universe is all connected together, all part of a single whole. And because of that, human beings are essentially divine. That you are God, I am God, you know, all is one, all is God. And so when it comes to suffering, according to New Age philosophy, suffering and evil are actually not real. Evil and suffering are just illusions. They're called maya. Suffering exists only in the mind. It's just a product of your own thinking that New Age teaches. And so it's through meditation. It's through positive thinking. It's through changing your thoughts that you get away from the illusion of suffering and you experience oneness with the universe. That's what New Age tends to teach. So for example, Celia Hayes, she's a New Age teacher and she's an author and she writes in the New Age journal about sickness, for example. And this is what she writes about sickness. She says, sickness is an illusion like all the rest of the illusions with which we surround ourselves. A son of God, which is what they refer to as any human being, a son of God cannot be sick in reality, true reality. And so we are asked not to view an individual as sick, not to give credence to the illusion, for by doing so, we reinforce the illness, and this we would never knowingly want to do. See, what, what is he saying? Is that when a person is suffering from sickness, the New Age floss will say, oh, that person's not really suffering. That's just an illusion. That suffering's not really real. It's just the thoughts in their mind that cause them to think about suffering, but they're not really suffering. And so our goal is to help them see that it's not really suffering. See, and, and this is the thing, is as well-meaning as New Age philosophers may be, the fact is I would submit that the New Age approach to say, oh, suffering is just an illusion. It's a denial of reality. It's actually, in some ways, almost insulting to people who are going through real tragedy and real pain. In contrast, you're going to find that the Bible, when it comes to evil and suffering, says evil and suffering are real. They are so, they're not an illusion. They're not just a product of our mind and our thinking, but there is real pain, real suffering, real tears that we cry, real heartache that we feel, real grief that we go through, so much so that God had to do something about it. And that's why He sent Jesus Christ. get to that in just a bit but that's the new age philosophy on evil and suffering it's just an illusion here's another one that's very very popular in our world today it's the karma based response to suffering and that is that idea is basically the idea that suffering is your fault see what is karma karma is this very key concept in many eastern religions like hinduism buddhism even in Western culture today, when you listen to the radio, when you go on TV, when you look online, you're going to find people in the Western world f- like talk about karma. They'll talk about what goes around, comes around. What is karma? Karma is this universal law. It's this idea that there's this universal law of cause and effect that is this automatic, impersonal force that takes into account everything that every person does. And for every bad thing that they do, there's a punishment every good thing they do, there's a reward, either in this life or in a future reincarnation of your life. Now, what that means then is that according to the law of karma, whenever you suffer, it's because you did something bad, either in this life or in a previous life. What goes around comes around, as they say. And so according to karma, suffering is your fault. When you're sick, it's because you did something bad in this life or in a life previous. When when you suffer, when you get into an accident, that's because you're paying for your sins or maybe your parents' sins. That's why a couple Sundays ago, when NBA legend Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, six other of their friends died tragically in this helicopter crash. That same day, a woman who's a leader in her community in the States went on Facebook and wrote this. She said, not gonna lie, seems to me that karma caught up with a rapist today. See, she's referring, what is she referring to? She's referring to Kobe Bryant. She's referring to a lawsuit that was filed against Kobe Bryant in 2003 when a woman that he slept with accused him of rape. The case was settled out of court shortly after it was launched, but evidently the person who posted this post on Facebook didn't forget and believed that the reason why Kobe died in that helicopter crash is because it was karma getting back at Kobe for the sins of his past. And that as a result, he deserved it. As a result, his family deserved it. Now, to be fair, this woman has since taken down that post and apologized for that post. But even in this short post, you can see just how dangerous, how misleading, and how downright cruel the concept of karma can be. A belief in karma can lead to very snap judgments about why people suffer. Oh, it's always their fault. It's because God is paying them back. Karma is paying them back. You know, It can lead to legitimizing evil. It can lead to people being just really passive and indifferent and insensitive to the suffering they see in this world. Oh, I can't do anything about it. It's just karma running its course. And, I, and let me tell you this. I don't believe for a second that the reason why Kobe Bryant, his daughter, their six friends went down in a helicopter crash was because this was God's way of punishing them. Or this was karma's way of punishing them because of whatever bad things they've done in the past. In fact, Jesus spoke against the concept of karma. Do you know that? Look at John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Read it with me. What does it say? It says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Stop right there. So what's going on? Jesus and his disciples, they're passing by, and they see a man who was blind from birth, born blind. And immediately, the disciples Though they didn't talk about the word karma, they had this idea like karma in their minds. Oh, hey, Jesus, what's the reason that this guy was born blind? Was it because he sinned or it's because his parents sinned? See, they automatically assume that the reason for this guy's suffering was because someone did something wrong. It was either him or his parents. And what is Jesus' response? Look at verse 3. What does he say? He says, Neither this man nor this parent sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed. Let's see what Jesus is saying. Jesus clarifying that when a person suffers like this on earth, when he's born blind, it's not because God is punishing him for his sins, it's not because he's punishing his parents for their sins. Rather, God allows the suffering in the person's life because God has a greater purpose. He wants to show the work of God displayed through that person's life. In other words, when you're going through terrible suffering, instead of assuming, oh, it's because of bad things that I've done or it's bad things that my parents did, you got to realize God has a greater purpose than that. And see, so don't assume when you see someone else who's suffering, they lose their job. Going, ah ha, punished for your sins. Or you see someone break up with their girlfriend and they're heartbroken. Ah ha, you must have done something in a bad life, or something d- bad, d- done something bad in a previous life. See, no, no. See, the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned. We've all messed up, and the punishment that we all deserve for our sin is death and separation from God forever. Not just you know physical death, but separation from God for eternity. And because God loved us, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, so that at the cross, Jesus paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. That's why when Jesus died, he's hanging on the cross. And what does he say? He says, it is finished. It's because all of your sins, past, present, future, all of it was extinguished at the cross where Jesus died. By the way, do you know where Kobe Bryant was before that helicopter took off that morning? He was in church. Kobe, his daughter, his family regularly attended the 7 a.m. service at their Catholic church. Ironically, talking about this rape accusation, you know what, it was actually the rape accusation that really caused Kobe to rethink his life. And back in 2003, he started to take his faith seriously again. And so as a result, he started to go to church regularly. And it was no different than on that Sunday morning when he died. Kobe, he went to the 7 a.m. service at his church. And praise God, 7 a.m., that's an early service. One day if we have a 7 a.m. service, will you come at 7 a.m.? That's the thing, is that Kobe, he he came, he went at 7 a.m., he received the communion where he remembered how Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sins. He acknowledged, yeah, I've messed up in ways that I can't ever make up, but because God loved me, he sent Jesus jesus christ for me such that we don't get the punishment we deserve instead we get the grace and the mercy that we never deserve come on give god a big hand here this place right now and that's the beauty of the gospel of jesus is that whereas the law of karma this law of karma says you always get what you deserve the love of god says because i love you i'm not giving you what you deserve Instead, I'm going to give you what you never deserved. Instead of giving you death and separation from me, which is what you deserved, I'm going to give you mercy and forgiveness and unfailing love and a relationship with me and a place at my table, something that we never deserved. You don't live under the law of karma. You live under the unconditional love of God. Amen. And that's why the approach, the karma-based approach towards suffering is something that you have to really reconsider. Is that it's not about whenever someone suffers it's because they did something wrong or their parents did something wrong and that's why the suffering is there. But it's, not, it's got, you got something else coming. Let's look at the atheist response to suffering. What's the atheist response? The atheist response to suffering is this. Suffering proves that a loving God doesn't exist. There's a guy called Charles Templeton who was once an evangelist. He was once a preacher. But he then turned into an atheist. And the turning point for him was one day when he saw a photo in Life magazine of a young mother in Africa holding her dead baby in her arms because he had died from a lack of rain in the region where they lived. And in his book called Farewell to God, this is what Charles Templeton wrote as he explained his turn toward atheism. This is what he wrote. He said, and I'll show it on the screen, he says, I thought, is it possible to believe that there is a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain? How could a loving God do that? Do this to that woman? Who runs the rain? I don't. You don't. He does, or that's what I thought. But when I saw that photograph, I immediately knew it was not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. There was no way. Who else but a fiend could destroy a baby and virtually kill its mother with agony when all that was needed was rain? And then I began considering the plagues that sweep across parts of the planet and indiscriminately kill. And it just became crystal clear to me that it is not possible for an intelligent person to believe that there is a deity who loves. A loving God could not possibly be the author of the horrors we've been describing. Horrors that continue every day have continued since time began and will continue as long as life exists. It is an inconceivable tale of suffering and death. And because the tale is fact, is in truth the history of the world, it is obvious that there cannot be a loving God. And see, uh, there's another guy uh, called David Hume. He's, an, he's, a, he's a philosopher, also an atheist. And this is what he wrote. More succinctly, he basically says the same thing. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he will? Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. He's mean. Is he both able and willing? Well, why then is there evil? See, in other words, the atheist's response to the problem of evil and suffering is to say, if there is an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God, then evil and suffering should not exist. The fact that there is evil and suffering shows, proves there is no God. Now, that's a really strong statement. But if you're an atheist, it's not enough to simply say a loving God cannot exist if there's evil and suffering. You can't just say that. You need to prove something. See, you still need to show why a loving God can't coexist with evil and suffering. Why can't? A loving God coexists with evil and suffering. Now, some atheists have at least attempted to provide a reason for why they don't think a good God and suffering can exist together. And this is what one philosopher, J.L. Mackie, argues says that a good thing always eliminates evil as far as it can. If a good thing always eliminates evil as far as it can, and there's no limit to what an almighty God can do, and so if he is not going to eliminate evil as far as he can, which is completely eliminated, then that means he's not good or he's not God. That's what he's saying. But let me ask you this question. What if there are good reasons for God to allow evil and suffering to exist? What if there are good reasons? Think about yourself for a moment. As human beings, we will sometimes allow painful things to happen, either to ourselves or even the people that we love. And the reason we do it isn't because we love suffering. The reason we do it is to prevent something worse from taking place. Let me give you an example. If your child had a cancerous tumor, and the only way to get rid of that cancerous tumor in your child's body is to let that child go through surgery, would you let them? Of course you would. It's not because you love surgery. It's because you're preventing something worse from happening. You're allowing suffering because you're preventing something worse. You're preventing a greater evil from taking place. Sometimes we allow suffering because we know it'll bring about a greater good. For example, after today's service, you can, if you're able to, ask your dad, was it painful watching mom give birth to me? Ask him that. Ask him that. Hopefully, and I I think his answer will be yes. Yes, it was painful. And then after that, ask your dad another question. Ask your dad, if you could go back in time, would you let her do it again? Hopefully, the answer is still yes, right? But here's the thing. It's because the pain of watching your mom go through childbirth was worth it to make something greater possible. That's you. That's you. See, in other words, as human beings, we will sometimes, ourselves, allow bad or painful or suffering things to happen to us or or to people we love, not because we love suffering, but because we're trying to allow something better, something greater to take place. And so my question is, can a good God exist in a world of evil and suffering? I believe the answer is yes is that an all-loving, all-powerful God could allow evil and suffering in this world and still be good as long as for every evil state of affairs, every state of suffering that you see that God allows, that there is a greater good that God creates. In other words, you can allow the evil, you can allow the pain, you can allow the suffering as long as for every one of those instances there is a greater good that can come about as a result. And see, toward the end of this message, I'm going to share with you four greater goods. That God makes possible by allowing evil and suffering. But let me share with you what I think is perhaps the biggest reason why God allows evil to exist in our world. If you ever wonder why does evil even exist, let me give you, I think, the biggest reason why. Is that God allows evil in this world because God wanted a world where love is possible. Now, you may be, what, well, evil, love, what, what do they have in anything in common? Let me tell you what evil and love have in common. Choice. Choice. See, when I was a teenager, I hated it when my parents would try to force me to do things I didn't want to do. Go say hi to auntie and uncle. Fine. And, and and this is the thing. Hated being forced to do things I didn't want to do. Now, this is the thing. You can force a person to say hi. You can force a person to bow. You can lock a person up in, in prison and force them to stay. But you can't force a person to love. Because love always involves a choice. Why did God decide to give us the freedom to choose, the freedom to make our own decisions? It's because God wanted a place, a world where love is actually possible. If he made us into these automatons, these robots, where we had no choice in the matter, then we couldn't love. Love would not be possible. Because God wanted a world where love is possible, he gave us the freedom to choose, and with that comes the risk. Because you can choose to love, or you can choose not to love. You can choose to obey God, or you choose not to obey God. Evil happens when we use our freedom to choose and we make the wrong choice. And because God wanted a world where love was possible, God gave us the free will to make our own decisions, which meant that evil would also be a possibility as well. But in God's mind, was it worth it? It was worth it in God's mind. And see, you may be, well, but JB, couldn't God have made a world where we can freely choose to love, but where love is the only choice? Can't well, and, and th- that doesn't make any sense to force someone to do something freely. You're gonna force them to do something, freely. That doesn't make sense, that's not logically possible. Oh, but JB, can't God do anything? Oh, God, isn't he God? Isn't he all powerful? See, let me tell you this God cannot do what is logically impossible, right? Just like there, there's no such thing as a, a square, uh, a square circle. Or, or, or like a, or like a, a married bachelor. The, the, the things that God cannot do, something that is logically impossible. That's just, that's just inconsistency. In words, it doesn't even make sense. But see, what God can do is He can create a world where we have the ability to choose. It's because He wanted to make a world where love is possible. If you believe that, say Amen. And see, now you might say, Okay, all right, all right. I'll give it to you that God gave us free will. I'll give it to you that God wanted a world where that is possible. And maybe that explains some of the evil that happens. That explains nine eleven. That explains terrorism. That explains why people murder and cheat and steal. They're using their free will to make the wrong choices. But what about evils that happen in our world without anyone really choosing? You know, Hurricane Katrina, tsunamis, you know, cancer, things beyond our control. What good can possibly come out of God allowing suffering like that to take place in so much of it? Well, the answer is we don't always know. And a lot of times we just we can't know. But here's the thing, because it's because we're not God. But just because we can't imagine any good reason that God allows certain stuff to happen doesn't mean that God doesn't have a good reason. It just means that we're not God. The fact that you can't think of a good reason doesn't mean that God doesn't have a good reason. Look at Ecclesiastes 3.11. Read it with me in a loud voice. 1, 2, 3, it says, He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. To end. In other words, what is this saying? It's saying that we all have this idea of God. We we all kind of you know in our hearts, deep down, it's like we have this idea of God being loving, powerful, good. But we cannot, we simply cannot comprehend everything that God does from beginning to end. And so there might be suffering in our world, and we're like, what good could come out of that? What possible good could be could come from that? And see, the fact that we don't know doesn't mean there isn't a good reason. It simply just means we don't know, but God knows. And see, that's the thing. You know, I'm, I'm going to put it to you today, actually, that suffering can actually be a clue that a loving God exists. And why is that? Well, let me, let me quote C.S. Lewis. He writes this. He, C.S. Lewis used to be an atheist, and he became a Christian after asking a lot of the questions that we're talking about in this series called Overcome My Unbelief. And this is what he writes. He says, if a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? And for many years, I simply refused to listen to the Christian answers to this question, because I kept on feeling, whatever you say, and however clever your arguments are, isn't it much simpler and easier to say that the world was not made by an intelligent power? Aren't all your arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious? But then that threw me back into another difficulty. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but my, a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. See, what is C.S. Lewis saying? He's seen that when an atheist says there cannot be an all-good, all-loving God if there's suffering and evil in this world, when they say that, they're actually contradicting themselves. Why? It's because if you truly believe there's such thing as evil in this world, if you truly believe there's such something as suffering and that suffering is truly wrong, not just your culture tells you, not just you feel it, but you just believe deep down that something somehow, that some way somehow, that this is wrong, then you what, what that means is that you actually believe in an absolute standard of right and wrong. You actually believe in an absolute standard of good and evil. And what is that standard if it's not just your own preference or your own feeling or your own culture? It's God. Is The fact that you believe there's something wrong with suffering and evil doesn't actually point away from God's existence. It actually points to God's existence. That's why C.S. Lewis says that atheism, it just seems to be too simple. And so with that in mind... If, you know, if New Age philosophy tells us suffering is illusion, and that's, that's I, I can't believe that. Or if karma says, you know what, all suffering is your fault, and I don't believe that either. And if, if atheist is too simple of an explanation and doesn't take into account all the things we're talking about today, what is the Christian response to the problem of evil and suffering? Well, hopefully as we've been talking about these different alternative views and I've been responding to those views, you've already gotten a sense, a pretty good sense of what the Christian response to evil and suffering is. But let me just summarize today how Christians respond to the problem of evil and suffering. I'll put it this way to you. In the Christian world and in the Christian faith, suffering is real and painful. It's real. It's not an illusion. It's real. But God does not turn a blind eye to our suffering. God is there in our suffering and responds to our suffering in three ways. I'm gonna tell you at least three ways. and So we're gonna end by looking at three ways that God responds to our suffering. You write this down. Number one, because God loves us, God stepped into our suffering and shares that suffering with us. See, God didn't just stand on the side as a spectator to our suffering. God didn't just sit on the sidelines and go look at them suffer. But God stood, stepped into our suffering in the form of Jesus. So we began today's message by looking at Isaiah 53. I'm not going to read all of it, but let's read three verses from there. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 3 to 5. Read it with me one more time. It says this. This is about Jesus. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from men from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we're healed. See, every kind of suffering that you will ever go through in life, God knows, he knows how you feel. He knows what it's like to be bullied. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be mocked and insulted. He knows what it's like to be stripped naked and publicly humiliated in front of people. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused of crimes that you didn't commit. He knows what it's like to be depressed and to suffer such great fear and anxiety that the condition becomes physiological, not just psychological. God knows what it's like to be tortured. He knows what it's like to have a heart attack. He knows what it's like to be suffocating to death. Why? It's because Jesus, the Son of God, experienced all of those things. God knows what it's like to be abandoned and left for dead. God knows what it's like to lose a child, to lose a loved one, because that's how the father felt when Jesus died on the cross. On the deepest level, God doesn't just know about your pain. He knows your pain. He feels your pain. That's why Jesus is called our great high priest, who sympathizes with our weaknesses. It's not because he just looks and goes, oh, it's because he felt every pain that you've ever felt. He suffered right along with us. That's why Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York, and he's an author of a really good book called Reason for God. He says, God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. So if we embrace the Christian teaching that Jesus is God and that he went to the cross, then we have deep consolation and strength to face the brutal realities of life on earth. We can know that God is truly Emmanuel, God with us, even in our worst sufferings. So I'm here to let you know, if you're going through some tough times today, if you're going through suffering today, you need to know something. You need to know that God loves you, that God is with you, and believe it or not, God knows exactly how you feel. He's not a God who stands aloof and indifferent to your suffering. He's a God who steps into our suffering and shares it with us. If you believe us, say amen. And see, not only did God relate to our sufferings, but how many of us know that God went above and beyond that? God allowed the greatest, most severe kind of suffering that he would never want us to go through he allowed that suffering to be inflicted upon himself upon his son jesus so that we would not have to experience it ourselves when jesus died on the cross jesus experienced an agony that god, that god doesn't want any of us to experience what is that agony it's the agony of true separation from god it is the agony of having no way no access to the to the presence of god and, and that's, that's exactly what Jesus experienced, is that we talk about how our, our, the wages of our sin is death, not just physical death, but it's separation from God's presence forever. And see, Jesus, he experienced that for us on the cross. When Jesus is on the cross, he's hanging from that cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's because in that moment, Jesus is experiencing the agony that we were supposed to feel of being separate from God forever, And Jesus was taking that on himself. And the fact is this, through Jesus Christ, God stepped into our suffering and actually suffered more than any of us will ever have to suffer. And so the question is not, why do bad things happen to good people? Because if you look at the word of God, the fact is, according to God's definition, there are no truly good people. Only God is truly good. All of us are sinners. The question is not, why do bad things happen to good people? The question should really be, why do good things happen to sinners like you and me? Because that's the way that God treats us. That's the first thing God does. He steps into our suffering to be our comforter. And he continues to do that today through something called his church. We are his hands and his feet. And we're called to bring comfort to people with the comfort that we've received from God. God steps into our suffering. Number two, God is committed to using our suffering for a greater purpose. You know, earlier I mentioned my friends whose six-year-old son died of leukemia. And, you know, what amazes me about this story is that on the day of that funeral, I'm standing by my friends. And I'm just amazed at how strong they are in a time like this. And I remember that my friends, they read out a message to everyone at this funeral. And they said, we're so thankful that because of this sickness, we started going to church. And it was at church that our son got to know the love and the hope we have in Jesus. And that we also got to know the love and the hope we have in Jesus, these th- my friends, they weren't Christians at the time before the sickness took place, and they actually now, in the middle of their son's funeral, were thanking God not for the sickness itself, but what the sickness allowed them to experience, which is a hope and a love and a peace that they didn't have prior to Jesus coming to their lives. And though it was tremendously painful, though the suffering was great, they saw they saw how God used that suffering for a greater purpose in their lives. In the same way, I'm I'm here to let you know, you know, when you look back at your greatest, most difficult times of suffering, I think you'll probably see, I think there's a good chance that you'll see that there was some good that happened as a result of that suffering. And, you know, that's because God uses suffering to produce something good in your life. In particular, God uses suffering to produce a greater good in four ways the Bible talks about. we're not going to look at all the verses that show all this uh, because of time. But let me just tell you really quick, four ways that the Bible talks about how God uses suffering for good in our lives. Number one, God uses our sufferings to refine us. God uses sufferings to make us stronger, to make us more resilient, to make us more loving, to make us more humble, to make us more patient. God uses it to refine us. Second, God uses our sufferings to remind us. What? Remind us of the fact that our home, our final home is not this earth, is that there's actually eternity waiting for you and for me. You know, if life was perfect here on this earth, we'd see no need for God and no need for heaven because it would feel like heaven on earth and we'd feel like we're God. But because God wanted not just 70, 80 years with us, he wanted to spend eternity with us. I believe he allows suffering and uses suffering, even suffering that he would have never wanted us to go through but simply because other people made choices, we made choices. He never intended that suffering originally, but he'll use it anyway to remind us that earth is not your final home that you actually have a home waiting for you, Jesus says. Uh, In my Father's house are many rooms, and I will go and prepare a place for you. And and sometimes I'm amazed at just how often God will use suffering in this plan, in this world, in our lifetime, to point us to eternity. And say it's not just all about being happy and being at peace now. It's about having an eternity with God in heaven. Third, God uses our sufferings to reveal his power through us just like that, that man was born, born blind. He was born blind. He suffered not because of his sins, not because of his parents' sins, because God wanted to do something even greater through his life, wanted to demonstrate his power through his life. And the fact is, maybe you're going through some suffering right now. You got to know that God allows that in your life not to be cruel to you, not because he's not there, he doesn't care, but it's because he wants to reveal his power in and through your life as you trust in him. Number four, God used our sufferings to write a greater story than we could write ourselves. Is that God is the greatest author of all. And He will use even the most nonsensical parts of our lives to do something that we could never do ourselves. We it's almost like one of those embroideries where, you know, on the back, if you just look at the back, it so much doesn't make sense. It looks messy, it looks ugly, you can't make any sense of it. But when you flip it around and you see there, like you see a beautiful picture. For some of us, heaven and earth are like that. Is that on earth all we see are little clusters of clumpy stuff and messiness and ugliness. But on the other side, God was actually doing a, big, a more beautiful picture than anything we could imagine. That's the way that God uses suffering, those four ways. Romans 8.28 says it this way. Read it with me in a big, loud voice. It says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so if you are, and what does it say? It says all things. Everyone say all things. All things. Not just the good things, but the hard things. Not just the expected things, but the shocking things. Not just the things that God would want for our lives, but even the things that God never wanted us to go through. But because it's a broken world full of people who are sinners, we go through stuff that even God didn't want us to go through originally, but it's it's just the result of having free will. God will use even those things. Those things that hurt you, those things that you're like, why did that happen? He will use all of those things to write a greater story than anything we could write for ourselves. And so if you're going through suffering today, what do you need to do? Trust God that he is using it for a greater purpose. That the suffering that you're going through is not the end of your story, but it's just a stepping stone to something greater that God is doing in and through your life. If you believe that, say amen. Finally, number three, God promises that one day he will right every wrong, avenge all evil, and fully restore his children who have suffered. See, the Christian response to evil, the Christian response to suffering, comes with an amazing hope that atheism will never give you. In fact, atheism is so hopeless of a philosophy that when people go through difficult times, atheism has nothing nothing to say. And so they'll borrow from religion and go, oh, I'm thinking of you. Oh, I'm praying for you. Even though they're like, oh, I don't know what I'm praying to but oh, thoughts and prayers. Because there's just no hope when you don't have a God. But the Christian response to evil and suffering is that one day God promises to make everything right again. Romans 12, 19 to 20 says it this way. Read it with me in a big loud voice. It says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written... It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. See, what is it saying? See, it means that God, does he take into account everything that we do? Yes, he does. Is there mercy at the cross? Yes, there is. But for those who refuse that mercy and that forgiveness, God is going to deal with them one day. God's going to deal with perpetrators of injustice. God's going to deal with people who've killed children innocently. God is going to deal with people who, you know, never repented of their sin. He's going to deal with all of it because he would not be a just God if he didn't. So God says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Because we know and we have assurance that God is going to right every wrong one day. We don't have to take matters in our own hands all, all, all the time. We can say, God, I trust in you. I'm going to leave room for you to do what only you can do. Finally, Revelation 21, verse 45 says this. It says, He will wipe every. Can we all read this out loud together? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. See, in other words, God promises that one day he's going to wipe every tear. He's going to put away all death, all mourning, all crying, all heartache, all pain. The old order of things is passing away. He's making everything new. That's the promise of heaven. That's the promise of God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, they say of some temporal suffering... In other words, the problems that we go through right now. No future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. See, what that means, and this means a lot to me, is that that means what Revelation 21 is saying. Is that those kids who fell at Sandy Hook Elementary, that they're dancing with Jesus today. That my friend whose son died of leukemia is alive with Jesus, and in a place where he will never be dying again. Oh, come on, give God a big, big hand here this place right now. Is that God is going to right every wrong. He's going to avenge all evil. He's going to restore every child who suffered. And if you're going through suffering today, there's one more thing you can do. Thank God that a day is coming when through Jesus Christ, there will be no more suffering that even if you're going through the worst trial of your life on earth, guess what? Heaven is waiting for you. Heaven is waiting for you. Turn your brain and say, Heaven is waiting for you. Heaven is waiting for you where every wrong will be righted, where every hurt will be healed. That is the hope that Christians get to have in the midst of our suffering. See, in the Christian worldview, suffering and evil are real. They're very painful. But they don't have the last word on our lives. The one who has the last word on our lives is God. In the end... God is our solution to the problem of evil and suffering. And so I hope you can see, after all this, that of all the different explanations that the world will offer for the problem of evil and suffering, it's the Bible that provides the best explanation, one that intellectually makes the most sense out of a very difficult problem, one that emotionally brings the most healing, comfort, hope, and help to people who are really suffering. Can we end today by standing to our feet and reading Romans 8, verse 18 together as we close off today. Could you read in a big loud voice with me right now? What does it say? It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Would you turn your neighbors on your right and your left, give them a high five and say, God is loving even in the suffering. Let's all stand. Let's respond to God.